And we can head over to Isaiah chapter 49. see if this works. All right. So coming into the end of Isaiah here, I know that one's going to be a little small. There might be one more that's a little small, but hopefully it's a little vision test. So remember uh, the last part of Isaiah is chapters 40 through 66, and that's kind of looking at it from the post-exilic uh, framework, right? What was the exile again? I can't remember. It's been a whole week. What, what, what is the exile? What happened? Somebody tell me. Refresh my memory. Was Israel exiled? Is that really the truth? Yes. Marcy shaking her head. Yes. They were exiled, right? After Isaiah told them, after Jeremiah told them, after lots of people told them that they were going to be exiled for their disobedience and they were going to be judged by the nations. There's two parts of Israel by this point, northern Israel, southern Israel, northern Israel was exiled by the Assyrian army in like 720-ish, and then southern Israel was exiled by Babylon around 538-ish, okay? So this is kind of looking back, and then this is kind of Isaiah, again, having these alternating themes of God's sovereignty, this is his judgment, this is why this happened, but also hope. Also, new things, also Jerusalem. So, Isaiah 49, let's look at 1 through 6. I'll read that for us. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, it's going to be a big word tonight, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength." He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so these last chapters, we're going to focus a lot on the servant, this mysterious figure of the servant. And verse 3 is one of those Uh, passages that if you're ever in an apologetics or a faith discussion with someone who's Jewish, the servant is going to be one of the most hotly contested points between us, right? Because we're going to say, spoiler alert, that the Messiah is the servant who is Jesus. They're going to say, you are out of your mind, you narrow-minded Christian. The servant is Israel. And they're going to point to... uh, 49.3, and they're going to say, duh, can't you read? He said to me, you are my servant Israel. Can't you see that? So this is one of those things where we're like, yes, we agree, but there's a whole New Testament, right, that as a Christian we believe that actually fulfills the Old Testament. And so, yes, there's two, there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is, yes, God's servant is Israel, but the far fulfillment would be the Messiah, It doesn't mean that it can't be Jesus as well as Israel in the Old Testament, 
right? Verse 5, the servant has a role. What is the servant's role according to verse 5? What do we think? To bring Jacob back, right? So the servant is going to have a role of reconciling God's people back to God. And if we jump over to a nice, succinct summary of the gospel in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, if anybody wants you to point to a quick verse in the Bible that says this is the gospel, this is a great verse to do that. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Watch this, that he might bring us to God. That's the goal of the gospel. John Piper wrote a whole book on it. said, God is the gospel. That's the goal of the gospel, is to bring us to God. We are separated from God. And the idea is that we need to be reconciled to God. So once again, we kind of see tentacles into the New Testament fulfillment of what the servant slash Messiah will do. He's going to bring Israel back to God. He's going to bring God's people back to God. But ultimately, the Messiah, of course, will bring God's people, us, and all of God's people back to God himself. It's reconciliation, one of the big themes of the gospel, reconciliation. But verse 6 of chapter 49, we have another really important consideration for the plan of the servant. What does he say in the last part of verse 6 there? What is he going to do? What is the servant, what is, what is Yahweh going to make the servant do? Pause for dramatic tea drinking while you think. Yeah, make you a light for the nations and salvation may reach the end of the earth. Right now, if you're Jewish, your head should be blown and your little things on the side should be moving in the breeze, right? It's like, what are you talking about? I thought we were, I couldn't remember the name of them, so. Right, what are we talking about? We're God's people, not the Gentiles, not other nations. We are God's people, right? So we have to keep remembering that the gospel has always been global. Gospel's always, it's always been bigger than just the nation of Israel. That the servant Messiah will be a light for the nations and the salvation of God then will reach the ends of the earth. It's the global plan of redemption. And that is actually quoted. I should have told you guys to stretch your fingers tonight. So if you haven't stretched your fingers, give them a good little workout. Acts chapter 13. Just to show you, I'm not making this up. Let's go to Acts 13, 47. This is right uh, when the apostles turned to the Gentiles after they preached to the Jews at Antioch, and the Jews are like, get out of here. Forget it. You're not going to believe it. The servant is not, you, not Jesus. It's Israel. We're waiting for the real Messiah. After they, they then reject the message, Uh, In verse 46, uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly and said, Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For, because, so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So then Paul drops this verse. Paul drops this from uh, Isaiah 49 and says, Guess what? You guys rejected it. It's all part of the plan. Don't panic. I'm turning to the Gentiles now, and that's what was supposed to happen anyway. So, neener, neener, neener. That's in the Greek somewhere in the bottom, right? 
what he says. We're going to the Gentiles now because that's how it's supposed to work anyway. All right, so uh, we're going to see, again, this theme that comes in again that Israel is not going to be forgotten, that there is hope, there is a future. And you'll see that in 49, like in verses 13 through 15. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Remember he called on the coastlands? He calls on heavens and now earth, right, as witnesses again to the covenant. He's calling them. Break forth mountains into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 40. And have compassion on the afflicted. But Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Right? Verse 15, God counters that. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. We'll see this time and time again, this last part of Isaiah, where God's going to break through and say, I'm not going to forget you. Like, you did your thing, you were bad, you were exiled, right? A lot of you were judged, but I'm not going to forget you. There's going to be something new that is going to be coming. All right, Isaiah 50, God's sovereignty he says, basically, yes, I sold you, but I am sovereign, so I can also redeem you back. What does it mean to be redeemed? Redeemed. Redeemed. What does it mean to be redeemed? What is in this tea? What? What did you put in here? <laughs> to be bought? Yeah, it's actually like a, what was that? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's something that you are paying for to get them back. So it's a really actual graphic image of Israel, right? It's a transaction. Very, very good. Yeah. Um, he says in the first couple of verses of chapter 50, right? Or, or, or which one of my creditors to whom I have sold you, right? Um, where is it? Do I have, uh, I have not, no power to deliver Right? He says, I, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? He says, yeah, you were sold into slavery. Yeah, you were exiled. But guess what? I was sovereign enough to cause that to happen, and I'm sovereign enough to redeem you back. And so that concept of redemption, that's a huge concept for us as new covenant believers, the, the, the concept of redemption. How are we redeemed? Yeah. I almost sang that last part of that song. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Right? We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that was the, that was the price that was paid for us to be free from sin. We also see that the servant will suffer and die. It's coming up very, very soon. Look at verse 6. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What does this remind us of? <clears throat> when did these things happen? Yeah, the walks of Calvary. Right? This all happened that Jesus was mocked, his beard was pulled out, he was slapped, he was punched, he was, he was hit, he was spit upon. Right? All of that stuff happened to Jesus. <clears throat> So, again, we're going to start to see some very specific kind of prophecies in here that are going to remind us of Jesus. All right, 51, back to comforting Israel. We're going to bounce back. 
Somebody want to read 51, maybe 1 through 6 for us in a nice and loud and authoritarian voice with a British accent? Just kidding. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. Again, we see these promises. I mean, what a promise is that? My salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Starting to have echoes again of eternity, of what's coming, and God's, God's then future hope of what he's going to bring us in the new creation. And of course, this is all going to be accomplished by the servants, which we would say is the Messiah. In Romans 10... If you have a spare finger, you might want to put it there because we'll bounce back and forth to that a lot. Um, Paul, in this section of Romans, is agonizing over his Jewish brothers that have not come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And he literally says, like, I would, I would give anything for them to come to understand that he is the Messiah, right? So in, in 10, verse 1 of Romans... He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So Paul says, how is that going to happen? How would it happen? It's Christ. They have to come to understand Christ. And so Note the, the, the duel in, uh, in, in Isaiah 51 in that last part in 6 where he's talking about the righteousness that he has will never be dismayed. And then Paul says straight up, I wish my brothers and sisters who were Jewish would know the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul affirms that Christ is the fulfillment of righteousness as the Messiah, as the servant. Jump over to chapter 52. Let's look at verse 13. Somebody want to read 13 through 15 for us? Thank you, Ronald. Do we see anything here that reminds us of Jesus, our Savior? What things do we see? There's lots of them. 
I can wait just as long as you guys. What do you think? Yeah, he'll be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, right? He suffered, absolutely. Behind, lifted up on the cross as well. You know, kind of have that physical thing of being lifted up on the cross as well as being exalted, right? What about acting wisely before we run past that? Was Christ wise? And of course, he was authoritative, right, in all of his teachings, and people were, were stunned and astonished by his authority, right? Somebody said something else. Uh, exalted. What else? What's that? He will sprinkle. That's the one that jumped out at me. He will sprinkle many nations. And why do you, why do you, yeah, that's, that's immediately what I thought of too. He will sprinkle many nations. I thought about the, the atoning work of his blood. Of course, that is good for all nations. That's the point of the gospel anyway. It's global. Yeah. And of course, his physical sacrifice, right? He, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond the children of mankind, right? So the, again, speaks of the suffering, hi guys, speaks of the suffering that Christ will encounter, which then brings us to the famous chapter of chapter 53, the suffering servant. First, before we blow right by it, look at 53.1, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom of the Lord has been revealed. How many of you still have your fingers in Romans chapter 10? I don't. Romans chapter 10, 14 to 15 says this, might sound familiar. Um, How then will they call on him in whom they not believed? And how are they to believe of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Is that the right one? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Remember this, Justin? We're rolling through this in Bible study. Ken, you were there too. All right. It's Paul saying that we're preaching the gospel and we need people to preach the gospel, but not everybody's going to respond to the gospel. And it's like echoing Isaiah, like, who could believe this? Who's going to believe that there's such a thing as a suffering servant? Like, the Messiah is not supposed to suffer. The Messiah is supposed to be this triumphant warlord king that just rolls into town and destroys everyone and exalts the nation of Israel and gives them back their land and does all that stuff. The Messiah doesn't suffer and die like a common criminal. Who's going to believe that? And that's what Paul then echoes again from Isaiah But jump back to Isaiah 53. This is where we get into the meat of it. Somebody want to read uh, 2 through 10 for us? A nice big chunk, a nice famous chunk. Or split it up amongst yourselves. 2 through 10, anyone? Because of 
Thank you, Ken. Very, very famous passage for Isaiah 53, right? Pointing to, again, as we would say, a suffering servant, a person, right? If you ever talk to a Jewish person, they're going to like, no way, that means Israel. And I did hear, I can't confirm it or not, that it is actually called the forbidden chapter. I see your hand there, son. Forbidden chapter um, that it's, it's removed. They don't read it in the synagogues anymore because they don't want people to put this together. There's actually a really cool conspiracy video. I knew I would get Ron and Justin to look up for that one. There's a conspiracy video on YouTube. Yes, Ronald. Does verse 9 reference Joseph of Arimathea? They made a grave with him with the wicked and a rich man in his death. I believe it does. I would say that it does, because Joseph was noted as a rich man, and that's where he donated his tomb for Jesus to be laid in. Yeah. But it is actually, that video that I was talking about is actually a pretty interesting video. It's like a 10-minute video where a guy goes, he's at the Wailing Wall, and he's going, he's interviewing people in Israel. And he's actually reading them this chapter in Hebrew. And then he's asking them, does this sound like a person or does this sound like a country or a nation? And, and they all say it's a person. And a lot of them say, I've never heard this before. So, pretty wild stuff when you think about it, right? What other things do we see of that make sense, that help us believe that this is actually Jesus in those, those word, uh, verses from 2 through 10? What other things jump out at us that make us believe it's Jesus? Ron had one all the way at the end about Joseph of Arimathea. That was a good one with the rich man's tomb. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? Absolutely, on the cross, on the sword. Ro? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and right, the prophecy or the part in the law, right? Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, right? So it's, yeah, anyone who is executed like that was noted as being cursed by God, smitten. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Pierced his hands and his feet. Yep. Ron, were you going to say something else? Yeah. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth, right? I mean, we all realize that Jesus was completely innocent, right? He did nothing wrong. He did nothing to be executed. So that's the definition of being oppressed 
and afflicted, right? He was an innocent person, and he was sentenced to die, so he was oppressed. And, of course, he did not open his mouth, as Ron said. He did not defend himself. He did not say, I'm innocent, right? How many of us would be like, no, don't put me on the cross. Like, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. But Jesus did not defend himself. What about the first part, right? He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, right? And we're going to start very soon in two weeks talking about Advent, talking about Christmas is coming, right, Ron? And the fact that he came as a baby and he grew up. He grew up as a human being, and so we can see that as well. Root of Jesse, yeah, the, the spring. What about one of the biggest uh, Bible words that we have, atonement? Anybody know what atonement is? God's wrath is satisfied, right? And so how is atonement? Yep. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The end of verse 6, it says, And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is exactly what Christ did. And so we see themes of the atonement as well. We have spiritual healing. We have spiritual restoration. By his wounds you are healed. Often taken out of context, yes. Um, there is a part, where is it? Surely is born our griefs and carried. I believe CSB goes with, surely is born our griefs and carried our sicknesses. What, what were you reading from, Ken? Oh, okay. Yeah, CSB's little brother. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so the prosperity gospel will take this out of context and will say that Christ paid for our sicknesses on the cross. And therefore, if you have a cold or cancer or whatever else, it's paid for on the cross, and you should not have that. And so just whatever you do, have enough faith or name it, claim it, or blab it and grab it, or whatever you're supposed to do, right, that... <laughs> To say that that is not, Christ paid for this sickness, it is, it is not welcome here, and therefore I, re, I, I claim the healing that is due in my name, and, and that's it. But yes, ultimately, right, Christ has healed all of our sicknesses. Ultimately, we will be healed when we are in eternity, but that doesn't mean right now, because right now we live in a fallen world. And right now, sin and sickness and evil and natural disasters and all kinds of things are here. So, beware of people who will quote this to say that Christians aren't supposed to be sick. That's not true, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Um, I was going to say something else in verse 10. Um, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Which is kind of like, well, wait a minute, I thought he was dead. It's like little hints of the resurrection here in Isaiah, right? Little, little seeds of like, he's not going to stay dead. Somehow he's going to be victorious over this whole thing. Little seeds of the resurrection. Where in the New Testament is this quoted? Oh, darn, I put it on the screen. I always do that. 1 Peter 2 quotes it directly. 1 Peter 2, 22. 
He committed no sin. Anybody you want to you want to pass this to go to? Whether you're questioning if Jesus ever sinned, First Peter two twenty two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's what a beautiful picture of the gospel that Peter brings in here and says, oh, by the way, don't forget Isaiah. By his wounds, you have been healed. Any other comments on Isaiah 53? It's such a massive, massively good chapter, gospel-soaked chapter. All right, let's look at 54 or 55. 54, we're back to comforting Israel. We have a little section in 4 through 7 where he's encouraging them again. And 55, some very, very famous words. I'll read that for us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples and a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now we see again this this concept of the restoration of Israel, but now again with a global redemptive plan in mind right? What, what is he talking about? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. If you have no money, come buy and eat. Well, how, do you, huh? how do I buy if I don't have any money? He says, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Speaking of really our, our salvation, right? Yeah. We can't buy our salvation. There's nothing we can do. There's not a, it's like this play on words. You can't actually pay for your salvation. It's free, but it's costly. There's still a value attached to it, right? It costs Jesus everything, but we can't pay that price. He already paid that price, and so we just get the blessings of it. We just get the salvation of it. We get the forgiveness of it. We get, uh, we get the food. We get wine and milk, which are, what's that? Well, maybe, maybe it's in the Hebrew. Wine, wine being, uh, you know, a source of celebration, right? A source of plenty and goodness and milk, of course. These things not always available when there were times of famine, right? The good stuff. Unbelief then is characterized by his uh, comment in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Right? Idolatry. Why are you not believing the Lord? You're wasting your money on this stuff that isn't going to sustain you. You're trying to go after these things that aren't going to sustain you. Right? And then he drops this promise of the everlasting covenant for all nations. He says, I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David, again, hitting, hinting that the Messiah will come from the line of David, which Jesus did. 
And then in, starting in verse 6, he starts to beg them to return to the Lord. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water of the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so that my word, so, that, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Famous words, right? A lot of sermons preached on that, right? <laughs> it's like the, uh, the preacher's consolation text, right? When you think you preached a, a dud, people are like, don't worry, pastor. This word's not going to return void. I'm sure it blessed somebody. It's like, okay, let's hope so, right? But he, he starts off by begging them to return to the Lord. He's like, this is the time. Seek God while he may be found, right? This is the time. And, and how many of us have said probably that in uh, consolation to other people and comfort to other people? His ways are not our ways, right? Probably a million gajillion times, right? We try to comfort somebody who's saying, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why God would have let this happen. And then we hit him with the old, his ways are not our ways, right? His thoughts are above our thoughts, which is true. It is true. And you should still do that. I don't want to make fun of that, right? You should still do that. Um, but for a nation, think of it in context, right? Think of it in context. A nation like Israel, who has to feel completely abandoned by their God, who has to feel defeated, who has to feel famine, they have to feel destruction of their cities and loss of human life on a huge scale. And then God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I mean, their first thought is probably like, yeah, right. Never in a million years. Do you see what happened to our, do you see what happened to our country? Did you see what happened to our city? Did you see what happened to my family? Like, everybody's gone. Everybody's dead. Buildings are burned to the ground. We got no fields. We got no foods. We're in this strange exile of people we don't understand, worshiping gods. We don't have the temple anymore. We got nothing. And you want to tell me that you're going to make an everlasting covenant and you're going to bring us back and you're going to comfort us? And then God drops in context. Yeah, but my ways are not your ways. Right? My thoughts are greater than your thoughts. And so yes and amen. Apply it to our situations today. But remember the context that it came from. It was a near impossible situation. And God's thoughts of grace are beyond our understanding and capacity. And really, if we thought about our sin like that, right, it sh we should have the same way. It's like, how could you forgive me? How could I be declared innocent in your sight? My ways are above your ways. You can't. You can't figure it out, but I can. And God's word, he goes right into that. That's how it's going to happen. God's word, which is the gospel. Jesus, the word made flesh. Right? Okay, chapters 56 to 66. 56 again, talking about the global plan of salvation, verse 3 and verse 6. There's foreigners who join to the Lord. Verse 7 he says, his house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
Verse 8, I will gather yet others to him besides those I've already gathered. Right? So again, dropping hints. This is going to be for everybody. This is not going to be for you. Right? You would think that Israel would be seeing this like, okay, we don't have our land. We don't have our people. We don't have our temple. Maybe this is bigger than us. It is. And he keeps kind of, he keeps kind of uh, playing that song and, and, and reminding them of that. Chapter 57, after a brief complaint of the righteous disappearing, he goes into this huge diatribe against hypocrisy and idolatry in verse, or, or chapter 58. And if you've ever heard this, this is, um, this is a really, really good passage. Really convicting passage. 58, starting at verse 3. Why have we fasted and, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and, and you take no knowledge of it? And then here's the answer. Behold, in the day of fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from the flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of your finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the midday. And the Lord will guide you continually. And satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins will be rebuilt and you shall raise the foundations of many generations and they shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. Where did I want to read to? All the way to the end. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What jumped out at us during those? What's, what's he going up? What, what, is he, what, is, what is Yahweh all upset about? Rhoda's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Jesus carries a lot of that into his his interactions with the Pharisees right Yeah. 
Exactly. They were so into the show, they missed their heart. Well spoken. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, he's going up against all of, like Jesus continues that on with the Pharisees. He takes issues with their dead, empty traditions, right? Whitewashed tombs. And it started here. Yahweh is like tearing into them and saying, like, what are you doing? They, they start with this little dialogue. They're like, well, we're fasting and we're praying and Yahweh's not answering us. I wonder why. And then God's like, wonder why? What are you, what are you talking about? Like, your fasts are ridiculous. Your fasts are not, not heartfelt, sincere fasts. Your fasts, as Rhoda said, were all for show. And they don't change your behavior. You're still quarreling. You're still fighting. You're still oppressing everybody. You're not honoring me with your fasts. He says, you want to honor me with your fast? Live like a legit believer. Live like a legit follower of God, right? He says, loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Go feed the hungry. Go clothe the naked. He says, do those things. I don't care if you sit in your little religious circles and sing kumbaya and fast in church, but then your whole life screams otherwise. He's like, that's why I'm not answering you. He says, if you do all these things, then I will answer you. If you, if you actually are a heartfelt follower, right, of me. The law is not attached to the heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it became very inward facing, right? They broke every commandment possible by doing those, by ignoring those two points. Yeah, absolutely. What's that? Yeah. 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 They were always up for a good stoning. Yep. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was absolutely the cult of the day. It was, it was false religion. It was idolatry. It was idolatry of the law. They, they, they couldn't see what the law was pointing to, and that's hugely evident, as Rhoda pointed out, when Christ came. Like, they were so wrapped up in their own law that they missed the Messiah. They were so blinded by their own religious practices that they missed the Messiah. I always think of Zechariah, too, who, who, who ripped them about this as well, and he just simply says... Uh, he says, ask the people in the land of the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? <laughs> I love that. That's like such trash talking from a prophet. Oh, cool, you fasted for 70 years. Was that for me? I don't think so. That was for you. You did that for you, not me. So we got to be very, very aware of that, even in this, right? And, and of course, we could miss that. We could just go off and running and being like, yes, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, like taking care of the homeless and all of this stuff, and that's what the gospel is. Wrong. That's not what the gospel is. That's a logical outgrowth of the gospel, that we would care about those things, but that's not the gospel, right? There's a ditch on either side. 
It's either just all law or it's all good works and grace and happiness and everything else, right? You've got to have the balance, which is in the middle, a heartfelt understanding of why we need a Savior and His name is Jesus. And it's got to take root in your heart and then take uh, outward actions as well. So yeah, 58, awesome chapter. If you want to get pumped up, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the idea of, of protecting all, all parts of us. And especially like an army, right? The picture of an army marching. There's got to be somebody protecting the back, the back flank, right? Chapter 59, we have a really good um, summary of why we need a Savior and what's going on with Israel. 59, 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what's going on with Israel. Oh, we're praying and fasting. You're not answering. Well, yes. And Isaiah tells them why, right? That's what happens to us. That's how we're all born, sinful and separated from God. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. That's the need for a Savior. And it continues on. Why expect blessings from God if you disobey him? He kind of turns a corner in 60, starting to talk about a future hope, which is beautiful. Bless you, setting that up. 61, verses 1 and 2. See if you recognize this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Yes. Yes. So this was read by Jesus in the synagogue, right, in Luke four sixteen to 21, which is just one of the biggest messianic claims in the end if not the biggest messianic claim in the bible and he comes to to uh, nazareth his hometown right a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and he goes and rolls into the synagogue and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the sabbath he got up to read the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him jesus picks this passage and he quotes it Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he goes and reads the whole thing. I love this. He rolls up the scroll. Like everybody's like looking at him, like, what is he doing? What is he going to say? Why did he read that passage? I don't know how you roll up a scroll, but he rolled up a scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he says, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing, and sits down. And people just lose their minds because he just basically said, That's me. I'm the guy. That's who Isaiah was talking about. And sooner or later, they tried to throw him off a cliff. But hey, he didn't. Huge, huge messianic connection from Isaiah uh, 61 going on there. Isaiah 62, he talks about the future hope of Israel. Once again, we see that alternating back and forth again. I'll just read those first two verses because they're pretty encouraging. 
For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall, shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So we start to hear sense of, uh, little hints of God doing this new thing, this new, I sang it last week, Ron, I'm not going to sing it again. You left me hanging last week, so, right? This new covenant that's coming in, hints of it, right? 63 to 64 is really just alternating themes. Hope of new Jerusalem, God's vengeance and judgment, right? It's kind of carried through the whole book there. There's this tension of judgment and salvation. 65, he gets very blatant in talking about a new thing in verses 1 through 9. Uh, Verse 2, he says, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. Paul quotes that directly once, if not twice, in Romans 10, in that same passage, talking about his his people. In 65, 17, huge. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Right out from Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he goes on, and I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Isaiah picked up again the the future hope of Israel being restored, but the future hope of all of us being restored in a new heaven and a new earth. Picked up in Revelation. In 66, talk about God's attributes, our humility. Sorry, guys, I didn't change the slide for all you furious note takers. Wow, I really, really didn't change the slide. What's that last one? Okay, cool. Um, Cool, cool, cool. 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand have made. And so all these things came to me, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, to whom I will look. One who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Again, we have these, these attributes of God as the, the creator, the sovereign Lord of all things. And he says, I will look at the humble, the contrite in heart, and the one who trembles at my word, the one who has that reverence for me. So if we ever feel like God seems distant from us, humility is usually a good place to start. And God's word is always a good place to camp. And then these last parts of um, 66, I'll just read those last uh, 22 and 23 For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That that hope, then of course at the end, kind of ends on a a note of judgment. So it's continuing through the whole book. (laughs) If some of you read that last verse, they're like, hey, okay, cool. You know, I could have ended with 23. That would have been nice. Right, but again, it's, it's that theme of, 
of divine hope and divine judgment that we see throughout this whole thing. So some quick theological themes as we land the plane, maybe some that we'll remember from the whole book. Um, Religious acts mean nothing if the heart isn't real. We saw that in chapter 1. We certainly saw it in chapter 58. It's not just about checking the boxes, right? We don't serve a God who wants us to check boxes. He wants our hearts. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? God also hates pride. In chapter 2, we also remembered Hezekiah, who was humbled. Hezekiah, the one who showed Babylon the front door. Thanks, Hezekiah. appreciate that very much. In his pride, look at all my treasures, Babylon. We should remember the holiness of God. Isaiah 6, which we talked about this morning at Bible study. Christophany? I think so, maybe. Trust God alone. That is throughout the chapter, or throughout the book. 43, 45, tons and 45. Remember, that was one of the big themes back then. Uh, Hezekiah ran to Assyria, or Hezekiah ran to this nation, or that nation, or this, and God's saying, no, don't, don't trust in them, trust in me. Trust in me. And it's funny how Hezekiah would go to Assyria for rescue, but in the end, it was Assyria that's going to come around, and, and same thing with Babylon. Let's buddy up with Babylon. Nope, that's not going to work either. Don't trust, like, trust God instead of blank, whatever, whatever that is. Trust God alone. God's glory is ultimate. Remember, I share my glory with no other. And of course, the theme of the Messiah coming, the suffering servant, we will spend Advent in Isaiah. And so we're going to go through a couple passages in Isaiah to talk about the prophecies that were fulfilled. God's glory and salvation through judgment. What does that mean? I've said that once or twice. What is God's glory? How is God's glory revealed in salvation through judgment? I know, it's 7.30. It's been a long day. You worked hard. That was a deep question. What's that? His holiness, right? Salvation doesn't come really without judgment, right? And we've seen that. Like, he's going to save Israel, he's going to redeem Israel, and by then he's also, by them also, he's going to save the whole world. But, well, those who believe, right? Those, his wrath needs to be satisfied. There has to be judgment in order for there to be salvation. And we see that carried through on the cross because Christ was judged in our place in order for us to be saved. And that's how God's glory is revealed. Think about that, that he actually judged his own nation, his people who rejected him. He had to judge them. But in that, he still preserved them. He still saved them. They're still a remnant. They're still there. Read Romans 9 through 11, right? Still there. They're still important to him. And of course, he brought the Messiah through them. And that's how we're saved, through his judgment. And speaking of the servant Messiah, he did what Israel could not do. He restored people back to God, and he was a light to the nations. That concept that uh, we need someone to bring us to God. We need someone to reconcile us to God, and that's the Messiah, that's the servant. But also that this plan is not just for Israel, it's not just for Highlands Bible Church, it is for the world. All right.
questions, comments, disparaging remarks. Sure. Yeah. I could do that. Yeah. Sorry, I kind of put the pedal to the middle there towards the end. I'm like, this is not going on for a fifth week. But yeah, I can, I, can, uh, I can post the outline too. I'll post it when I post the video on the website. There's a place where I post the bulletins and stuff, and I'll put it right with that, right with that video. All right? I hope you guys are encouraged as, as I am, go, even just going through this at a high level, just to see the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the, the jaw-dropping sovereignty of God, His holiness, but also His mercy, compassion, He's like, yeah, I, I, I judged you, Israel, but I'll save you. My hand's not too short to save. And so we should remember that as well for us. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for Isaiah, Lord. It's taken us uh, four weeks to get through, uh, just even an overview. But Lord, it is a deep, encouraging, historical book. One that reminds us that you control nations and you do them to you control them to do your bidding, and so let us be encouraged even now as we see things uh, in the news that trouble us. We are reminded of your sovereignty, and Lord. So many things we could we could pray for out of Isaiah. We pray that we would have an awareness of your holiness. Um, we pray that we would be humble and that we would tremble at your word. We pray that we would trust you above all else. We pray that we would take encouragement in you sending Jesus, the Messiah, for us, Lord. We pray that we would be legit followers of God, not like the examples in chapter 58, Lord, that we would truly desire to be honest and uh, endeavoring to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. So help us to do that, Lord. Thank you for your word, which instructs us about who you are and who we are before you. Help us to walk in the truth of it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.